Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue our series and our season of Lent, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we look at what it means to let go of power. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 once again this morning. Uh, let me start with a relatively bold claim that you may or may not agree with. Um, but you can't leave if you disagree until so you at least let me make my case. Okay? Uh, here's a bold claim you may or may not have walked in the doors agreeing with. But this is the case I want to make. Uh, my bold claim is that we should be very careful quoting the Bible especially to people who have had um, a season of stress or struggle or have um, walked away from the church uh, for a variety of reasons. We should be, or they're just simply stuck, um, we should be really careful. It's not that we can't. We should be really careful quoting the Bible. Again, agree, disagree, don't raise your hands, um, but uh, let me make my case. Uh, and by the way, I'm not I'm not just talking about the, sometimes they can come off a little bit trite, like the cliches that are true, but they can come off as a dismissal of somebody's pain. Like, um, I'm so sorry for your loss. God has an excellent plan, right? Like in that moment of significant loss, sometimes those words just feel small and can kind of answer away the, the, the pain. Or uh, you've been in the uh, visitation and it's like, you know, this is all, this is all part of God's plan, and uh, not, all, not always the most helpful thing or the most pastoral thing or the most Christian thing or God won't give you more than you can handle, those kinds of things. We're going to um, take, uh, we'll take some time this summer and unpack some of those kinds of, like, let's put those in context. They're actually quite helpful when you understand the context, um, but just spoken in the wrong setting can actually cause more damage than good. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about this morning. What I'm talking about is that sometimes it's, what I want to talk about at least is that sometimes uh, we quote the Bible, and uh, our quoting of the Bible can have the wrong intentions. And when they have the wrong intentions, often the quoting of Scripture can do more harm than good. It can actually be quite dangerous. So to make that case, we'll be uh, back in Matthew chapter 4. If I've not met you yet, my name's Tim. I'm, I'm grateful you're here. There's a, there's a beautiful day. There's a lot of places you could be, but you're here. And so um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, if it's your first time with us. Uh, I hope you catch a little bit of our heart. Um, we really believe in uh, what is happening in our community and not just on a Sunday morning in the space, but what's happening in our schools and what's happening in your businesses or where you work and your families. Uh, and then um, I love that we get to meet again. For some of you, you're meeting Daniel. For others, you're seeing Daniel again. Um, but uh, to hear some of your story and the work your family is doing is really cool. What's your, what's your book about? Apologetics. Apologetics. All right. All right. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I went to the back to see if I could find the chocolate. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, is Dutch or is a Hungarian chocolate different? It's better. It's better. <laughs> it's, okay. We'll be the judges of that. Uh, <laughs> us Dutch like, like black licorice. That's our thing. And really dry. Some of you are shaking your head now. And really dry baked goods with almond in them. That is our thing. <laughs> We'll make you some. Uh, 
We are. So we are in week two of a series that we're calling The Art of Letting Go. Uh, we are walking through the season of Lent. This, um, by the way, if you're unfamiliar, Lent, uh, I understand it's kind of church insider talk. So uh, Lent is the season leading up to Easter in which historically Christians have really done the interior work of trying to journey with Jesus to the cross and ask the question, is there something in my life uh, that has got a hold of me that I should let go? That's Lent. It's a season not to be confused with Lent which is the stuff that you find in your pockets or your belly button. Not to be the fuzzy stuff. Not different things, okay? Uh, if I recognized last week I was using this word Lent, and I'm like, I wonder if I'm being misheard. Okay, so we're not talking about that. We're not saying you should all embrace Lent. That's not what we're saying. Um, we're, we call the series The Art of Letting Go, and one of the things we're trying to wrap our minds around in the series is this ancient idea of uh, what some have referred to the spiritual disciplines, uh, the 12 steps, or uh, what we are calling the, the rule of life, or a rule of life. How do we build one? Uh, we're going to try to build a layer, like layer by layer, over the course of six weeks. My hope is that uh, if we're clear enough, um, by the end of six weeks, you should have all of the tools to look at your life and say, where are patterns in my life that my life has just kind of fallen into these patterns, and I don't love the patterns, and how do we develop new habits that become the patterns we live by. Um, we all want to be uh, people of integrity, and we all want to be people of character and of substance. How do we build the habits to do that work? Um, what we said last week is uh, a vision. So the layer we added, the, the base layer is we all want to have this vision of who we are. If you're a Christian, who you want to be uh, and who I want to be is somebody who looks more and more and more like Jesus. We just sang it. That's what we want. Um, that's the vision. But without a plan for that, without like actual, what are we going to do? What, what's the steps I'm going to take? As good as the vision is, if you don't have a plan, often the vision is just like a dream that likely never sees daylight. We need a plan. So what's the, what's the plan? Uh, now, um, we are working through, for the first three weeks of this series at least, we're going to work through the three temptations that Jesus faces early in his ministry. Uh, and last week we looked at the first one. This week we are going to look at the second one. I want to add another layer. Um, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's pause there. Um, I was called out last week. I'm really grateful for it. But uh, somebody called me out. You know who you are. I'll, you'll remain nameless, but you know who you are. Uh, after the service, somebody came up to me and said, Hey, good sermon, Tim, but... Which is, by the way, never a great way to start a sentence. <laughs> good sermon, but... And then they added, good sermon, but uh, you... Like, this whole time you were talking, and I, I was just a little disappointed. Getting better. Uh, and then they said, you know, this whole time you were talking about this location and trying to explain it, and you never showed us a map, and you never showed us a picture. And you always show maps and pictures, and so what, how dare I? So let's, let's write it wrong. Uh, this is the land of Israel. It's the land of Israel, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea. By the way, Gaza Strip is down here. That's where all the conflict is happening currently. This is Israel. Jesus, uh, the story right before this, Jesus is baptized. Uh, Jesus is baptized here. Uh, the site of his baptism also happens to be the exact same spot. Um, we've got lots of contextual evidence for this. Uh, that the Israelites will cross after wandering the desert for 40 years in this area. They will cross into Israel here. 
the stories are connected. Uh, this is the same spot that Elijah gets taken up in the chariot of fire and the mantle gets passed to his disciple Elisha. That happens right here. Jesus goes to this location intentionally because um, he's trying to draw some connections. That's for another sermon, but that's where uh, the story before this happens. Then Jesus will go into the Judean wilderness, is what it's called in our Bible, where he's tempted by the, the devil. This is the Judean wilderness. Uh, I, I find the map helpful because it's, it's like right next door. In our story, then, he will leave the Judean wilderness and he'll go to Jerusalem. Um, that's the next turn, and it's just right here. It's right next door. In my head, growing up, when I read the story, it was like Jesus was like just sucked in, like hot tub time machined into the air and then dropped in another location and then dropped in another location. It's, he's simply heading west. This is the Judean wilderness where he'll be tempted. Now, when I think wilderness, I often think trees and like overgrown brush. Here's a Judean wilderness, an image. It's the desert. Uh, here's another image. Not much grows in here. It's, it's the desert. Jesus is entering into the desert. Now, you can see the connections immediately from this story to uh, the story of the Israelites wandering. It's 40 days. The Israelites wander 40 years. Uh, many times they go without eating, and Jesus will go without eating. Jesus will enter into a desert where he's tempted three times. Uh, they're the same three temptations or tests that the Israelites in the book of Exodus, which we'll study this fall, they're going to fail at. So you get the sense that Jesus is kind of re-walking the Israelites' steps. He's getting right what they got wrong. Um, so that's the maps. I'm glad you know who you are. I'm glad you called me out. I write, did I write my wrong? Okay, we got some images. Uh, now, um, we got a map. We got a photo. Uh, let's get back to the text. After fasting 40 days and... Forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, please tell these, or tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, um, that's the first temptation. That's where we spent time last week. Um, but just, just notice something. Uh, first, the devil tempts Jesus. If you've like, okay, what do we do with this devil stuff? Again, that's another sermon um, we don't have time to get into it, um, but in, at least at length this morning. But it's the devil tempting Jesus. And we have here three temptations, but notice how um, Jesus is going to respond. He quotes something. What does he quote? Bible, Scripture. Jesus, in response to temptation, quotes the Bible. Now, I started by saying, be careful quoting the Bible. Why would I say that if that's how Jesus responds to temptation? Stay with me. Uh, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written and he will quote scripture. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, um, Jesus is tempted a second time. Let me take you back to a map. I've learned from my mistakes. This is Jerusalem. So again, Jesus is simply heading west. Uh, Jesus, the, the devil takes him to Jerusalem where he has him stand at the highest point of the temple. We know where this is. Uh, let me show you a model of the temple. The temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And uh, 
What is known as the Trumpeter Stone, which is in the, the southwest corner, is now, um, it, well, now it's sitting in a museum somewhere, but there's a replica on the street because it was torn down as Jesus said it would be. Uh, this is the location of the temple where the priest every day would take a ram's horn, a shofar, and they would blow the ram's horn to announce the daily sacrifices. They would also, on Sabbath, to announce the arrival of Sabbath and to announce when Sabbath was done, the priest would stand on the corner, the highest point of the, of the temple, and they would blow the shofar just so everyone knew when Sabbath began. The devil, Satan, takes him here and he says, jump. Doesn't this, don't the scripture say that if you jump, you just call on angels and the angels will save you? Doesn't it say that? To which Jesus responds, maybe, yes, but doesn't the, don't the scriptures also say something else? Satan quotes the, it's almost like he saw Jesus quote the Bible in response. And so he says, oh, I know this strategy. I'll quote the Bible to you. Uh, now his specific quote is from Psalm 91. Uh, that's what Satan's quoting, Psalm 91. And Jesus will respond, uh, all three temptations. He quotes the sermon from Moses we call Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter six in this case. But it does, to back up, it does kind of feel like a lot of the religious debates you hear today, doesn't it? You've got your Bible verses. I've got my Bible verses. You throw your Bible verses out at me. I have my Bible verses to back up my positions and my stances, and I throw them back at you. And whoever knows the most Bible verses, and if that's the game we're playing, tends to win the debate. That's the game we play. Now, if you've been coming here for a while, you know that there has to be more going on. Specifically, why do they quote, why does Jesus specifically, why does he quote what he quotes? Why does Satan quote what he quotes? Is there more going on in the story that if we were to just understand the nature of what they're quoting, we might understand a little more of why Jesus will say what he says and why Satan will say what he says? We know that. Now, um, as my good friend, uh, my good Israeli friend will say, his name is Ronen Ben Moshe. He'll say, hold your camels, we'll get there. Um, they don't have a lot of horses in Israel, <laughs> but they ride camels. Uh, I want to introduce you to, uh, before we go there, I want to introduce you to a couple of people. Uh, this is a gentleman by the name of Kane Kramer. Does this name sound familiar to anyone? Yeah, me neither. Uh, Kane Kramer, interesting guy. Um, he is a British inventor and uh, entrepreneur businessman. In 1979, he had an idea. It took him until uh, 1986 to get a working model, but his idea was uh, called the IXI. Here's an early drawing of the IXI. And uh, you notice that you've got a screen, and then you've got what appears to be a, uh, like a click wheel with a play button in the middle. This is a music device. Here is his, like, like out there idea in 1976. Uh, here was his out there idea. What if we could take eight tracks? Remember the eight track? Some of you. Uh, or cassette tapes. What if we could take like an album that was limited to, a cassette was what, 80, mu 80 minutes long or an eight track had eight tracks? What if we could take that and you could add hundreds of songs and you could then take that machine and you could put it in your pocket that would change the game. That was his idea. That happened in 1976. He uh, set out to find people to back his idea. Again, by a decade, or 19, yeah, by a decade later in 1870, or 1986, he had a working model, but he couldn't get 
funding for this model. Now, this looks a whole lot like something else. Uh, how many of you recognize this man? Anyone? Steve Jobs. Uh, in 2001, 15 years uh, later, Steve Jobs, uh, after the working model, Steve Jobs came out with the iPod. The iPod, uh, up between 2001 and 2014, when the iPhone really replaced it, uh, the iPod sold north of 400 million units. You recognize Steve Jobs largely without the iPod. There's probably not the iPhone. Uh, and the iPod was really the thing that put them on this, like, okay, we don't just do computers. We do this. Like, this is like magic. Thousands of songs in your pocket. Um, but Kane Kramer could not convince people that this was a good idea. Couldn't get people to back it. He needed 60,000 pounds, so like roughly $60,000, and uh, he couldn't raise the money. And so because he couldn't raise the money, he had the patent, but he didn't have enough money to re-up the patent, and he lost the patent. If, here's, here's the reason I tell you the story. If only investors would have seen his vision would have understood the power of that little device he held in his hand, uh, you may recognize Kane Kramer more than you recognize Steve Jobs. But they didn't understand the power of what they held. Uh, in February 1995, the writer Clifford Stroll made the following prediction about the future of the internet. Uh, he published a statement in Newsweek magazine. He said this. He said, I am uneasy about this most trendy and oversold community. Visionaries see a future of telecommuting workers, inactive library, uh, interactive libraries, and multimedia classrooms. They speak of electronic town meetings and virtual communities. Commerce and business will shift from offices and malls to networks and modems. Baloney. <laughs> the truth is, no online database will replace your daily newspaper. That was published in Newsweek. Uh, the irony of the story is, if you want to read that article now, you cannot find a print copy of Newsweek because Newsweek discontinued their print copies and have moved everything onto the internet. My man Clifford didn't understand what the power of the thing he held in his hand, uh, the power of the thing in front of him. In 1903... Uh, this is a relatively famous example. Uh, the president of a leading bank told Henry Ford, founder of Ford Motor Company, that the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. Who here rode their horse this morning? <laughs> I was doing a, um, at my former church, it was going to be our 100-year anniversary, so I was going through our records, and what I discovered is what back in the day at Vreesland Reformed Church, what they would do, is you would heat a brick on the stove and, uh, or in like your, your, in your, like over the fire, I guess. And you would then sit on the brick, bring your horse, and then the brick would be what you would sit on for heat. And the service would last as long as all the bricks were hot. And as soon as the bricks were no longer hot, you would all just kind of say, okay, it's getting too cold in here. Let's get up and go. So it was like an hour timeline, which is kind of locked itself into how we do church. Um, now you know that. They also would pull the beer wagon up. I found this out after consistory meetings. Yeah. It was in the budget. <laughs> Total aside. Ah, in 1992, 19, some of you are like, I would join. 
back in history. In 1992, Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel, said that the idea of a personal communicator in every pocket is a pipe dream driven by greed. If only he knew. Uh, these are fun. One more example. Uh, former CEO of Microsoft, Steve Ballmer, laughed at Apple and said, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. <laughs> if only he knew. Uh, that brings me to a few lines that get quoted a lot. Uh, when we talk about the Bible, there's one verse that tends to get the most quoted in talking through the Bible, and it tends to be uh, a letter. It's actually originally a letter from a man named Paul who's a church planter, like Daniel, and he's planting lots of churches, and he's writing his apprentice or his disciple, a kid at this time, a teenager named Timothy, and he says these words, 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of, appearing, of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you, Timothy, this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. They will watch videos on YouTube about a man named Q, and they will argue that the earth is flat. That's my translation. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Catch his argument. Paul says to Timothy, here's what you got to do. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. Preach the Bible. It has power to correct, to encourage, to right what's wrong, to rebuke if someone's gone off the rails. But also, be really careful. This book has power. And if or when it gets into the wrong hands, what you'll discover is there will be some people who will use this book to say whatever people want to hear so that they can justify whatever selfish interests they hold. The book is power, but be careful. And he's right, isn't he? Guys, play a game. I call this game, When Your Pastor Ruins the Movies. Okay, here we go. Um, I, <laughs> I love movies that have a great twist at the end, like a plot twist at the end. Remember the the moment you watch The Sixth Sense for the first time, and it's like, wait, what? Uh, the whole movie, it's like, if you, if you didn't... You know, what's the worst part of a movie with a great twist is when your friend sees it before you and tells you the twist, and it, like, ruins the whole movie? Let's play a game called When Your Pastor Ruins the Movies. <laughs> no, this particular movie came out in 2010, so don't tell me that you're going to go home and watch it today, okay? You had 14 years to watch this movie. <laughs> Uh, the movie's called The Book of Eli. Anybody see this movie, The Book of Eli? Book of Eli, uh, fascinating premise. Uh, the premise is there's a man named Eli. Uh, he's the good guy. He's uh, Denzel Washington. And Denzel Washington, Eli, has a, it's like post-apocalyptic America. And he's got this book, and this, this sacred book. And he's, he knows that this particular book has the power for humanity's salvation, but he's got to get the book across the nation in a post-apocalyptic America. 
We also have a bad guy in the movie. Uh, his name is Carnegie in the movie, and um, he, he's played by Gary Oldman. And uh, he knows that this book also has power, and so he's trying to get the book because if he has this book, he holds the power. So the premise of the movie is Denzel's got to get it to one side of the country, uh, to the other side, the west side of the country, and Gary Oldman's trying to stop him because he wants the book himself. Um, There's a particular scene in the movie that I find really great uh, to encapsulate the entire movie. Um, Connergy says, I need that book. I want that book. I want you to stay, but if you make me have to choose, I'll kill you and I'll take that book. Eli responds, why? Why do you want it? Carnegie, I grew up with that book. I know its power. Now here's where your pastor ruins the movie. Um, The whole movie is about the secret book, but it's not until the very end, the plot twist at the very end of the movie, spoiler ahead, uh, where we we discover that the secret book that they're talking about is actually... You spoiled it, not me. The Bible. Uh, Again, it's from 2010. You weren't going to go home and watch it. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I want you to preach this book. This book has power. It can encourage people. It can correct people. It will help people when they find their lives gone off the rails. The book is power. And be careful, because some are going to twist the book for their own interests. Paul warns Timothy, his apprentice. And it turns out, if you follow history, He is right. History records example after example after example of people quoting scripture for self-interest or really ugly, non-Christ-like motivations. Okay, let's play another game. Um, This game we'll call, Who Said This? Who Said This? Um, uh, The rules of the game are simple. I'll read a quote, and you tell me who said this. First quote. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Thus, I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. By defending myself against the Jew, I am fighting for the work of the Lord. Who said this? If you guessed Adolf Hitler, you win the game. And you lose your soul. Uh, But you win the game. (laughs) But notice he's just, he quotes the Bible to justify, uh, out of context, maybe this summer we'll look at this one too. It's out of context, but he, he misreads the Bible, but he uses these words to justify what I think every one of us would agree is purely, purely evil. Now at the same time, uh, there's uh, one of the one of the gentleman who had the greatest impact against Nazism, a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he has some excellent stuff on community. If you, if you, brilliant man. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on, uh, he was hanged by the Nazis on April 9, 1945, because of his participation in the uh, German resistance movement to Nazism, and in particular, Adolf Hitler. Uh, he describes his mission like this. He says, We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. That's a good quote. Um, Both quote the same book. But what the book instructs them to do, how the book leads them to live, very different. So 
Paul says to Timothy, the book has power. Some will use it for good. Some will use it for evil. How do we know if we're reading this book right? Okay, let's play another round of who said this. Uh, another round. Um, Phil, okay, who said this? We the, fill in the blank, reverentially acknowledge the majesty and supremacy of Almighty God and recognize his goodness and providence through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a bit tougher. Who said this? If you said the order of the Ku Klux Klan or the KKK, you win the game and lose your soul. Um, but you win the game. Uh, again, it's an organization that I think all of us would say is associated with pure evil. And yet they quote on their website that their existence is all instructed by their careful observance of the scriptures and of Jesus himself. Now, at the same time, who said this? To throw our most bitter opponents, or I'm sorry, to our most bitter opponents, we say, throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our houses and threaten our children and we will still love you. Beat us and leave us half dead and we will still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. I'm okay. Martin Luther King Jr., you win the game, and your soul is good. You're good on that one. My point is just quoting the Bible uh, does not mean you actually understand what you're quoting. Uh, the book has lots of power, and this book has been quoted a lot in our history. It's been quoted to justify a lot. Some of the world's greatest evils have come because this book has been misquoted. Some of this world's greatest good has come because of Christians who have been inspired by the words and the works of Jesus. Um, but some of the worst, uh, and, and many of you, you, you've bumped into people who quoted this book in a way that just feels wrong. And even if you don't have a snappy quote to give back or another verse to give back, it's just like you can just tell that they're using the Bible to win the debate or they're using the Bible uh, to answer away the pain so we don't have to deal with it. Or they're, they're quoting the Bible to justify some act of hatred, ugliness. Uh, they're the ones who will, you'll see their bumper sticker and uh, it'll be like, I'm praying for the president. And then it'll quote some like ridiculous part of the Bible that's like, I'm praying that curses would fall on their head. Right? Like the Bible gets twisted a lot. And you read it and you're like, that just doesn't feel right. But I don't have a verse to quote it. I don't have a verse to attack it. The Bible has power, Paul says to Timothy. But be careful. Because some will use this book. Uh, people have used scripture in, uh, here's just a list, and this is not an exhaustive list, but people have used scripture in ending slavery and in defending slavery, in women's liberation and in women's oppression. People have quoted the Bible in the overturning of apartheid in South Africa and in the defense of apartheid. That's an ugly chapter of the Reformed Church's history, by the way. Um, that was largely the Reformed Church. Uh, the empowerment of the poor and the suppression of the poor. The destruction of Nazi Germany and the defending of uh, the actions of Nazi Germany. The rise of the American democracy and the abuses of the American democracy. The civil rights movement and the justification of racism and hate. The Bible uh, can be quoted. Be, so back to my premise that we started with. Be careful, quoting the Bible. Be careful. What is this? Where is it coming from? Now, back to our passage. Uh, 
The devil tempts Jesus by quoting the Bible, and Jesus responds by quoting the Bible. Both seem to get their inspiration from the same book, but the heart, the intentions of the two, wildly different. So we have a problem. Everyone's quoting the Bible. How do we know whether we're quoting it right, uh, the way it was intended, or whether we're just saying things that are itching ears, to quote Paul, want to hear? A little bit of context uh, and um, we got to move through this part really fast. And so I'm going to, I know it's our favorite work to do here, but we're going to sprint through it. If I lose you, just stay, do your best. Um, say in quotes, Psalm 91. Psalm 91, specifically verses 11 and 12. There they are on the screen. That's what he quotes. He's pretty accurate in his actual word-for-word quoting of Psalm 91, but he does pull it out of context pretty significantly. Psalm 91, when you put it in context, if you just read the first couple verses of Psalm 91, what you discover is Psalm 91, the entire psalm, is how do you trust God when things get difficult? How do you trust God when uh, you don't have answers? Psalm 91 is not about running away from the pain. It's how do I trust God in the midst of it? How do I not run away? How do I not avoid the pain? Now, the specific part, this is where it gets really interesting. The specific part he quotes is verses 11 and 12. What comes directly after 11 and 12 is 13. Here's what 13 says. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. So again, it's all about trust. But notice what's... The specific examples are, you'll tread on the lion and the cobra. You'll trample the great lion and the serpent. Now, uh, Jesus knew his Bible. Would you agree? Most Jewish people of Jesus' day, religious Jews at least, knew their text. Uh, and when you, and particularly the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms were the songbook. Uh, and so you knew these because you sang these songs. This would be like quoting Taylor Swift to a teenager. right? They know what's coming next. They... Jesus knows what's coming next. Now, um, knowing that, when Satan quotes this whole bit about trampling the serpent, it's actually, Psalm 91, is referencing another story. And this particular story, pretty foundational. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, for context, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They're tempted by a a serpent. They eat the fruit. Afterwards, God has some curses for that serpent. And he says this to the snake. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Religious people notice that we have a change in tense. We go from the plural offspring to a singular he. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So they said, ah, someone's coming. All the evil we see someone's coming. They refer to this one who's coming as the Messiah or the anointed one, God's anointed one, or the Christ. They said, someone's coming who's going to fix it. Someone's coming who's going to deal with all this evil caused by this serpent. Uh, Now, uh, Psalm 91 also talks about trampling the lion. Uh, The lion became the dominant metaphor in many ways to talk about that serpent and his abilities to tempt us, to persuade us. Uh, For instance, Peter will say, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Pull together. The devil quotes a verse 
And the very next verse is all about someone coming who's going to take down the devil, trample the devil. Now you got to ask yourself a question. Either the devil is really dumb or he's not and he knows exactly what he's doing. I think it's probably the latter. So why would he quote this of Jesus? Here's where we'll make sense of it all. In the first story, the Adam and Eve story, we understand a temptation playbook that seems to, like Satan hasn't had to abandon it because it tends to work. To this day, it tends to work. The playbook goes like this. He quotes God. Pretty accurately, actually. But pulled out of context. But he quotes God, and uh, he's got a motive behind his quote. His motive is, you don't need to listen to him. You can just be him. Why listen to him when you can just do it? He's only, he's only not letting you do that because he wants to hold all the power for himself. But your interests are what matter. Your power, your individualism, your autonomy. That's what really matters. That's the temptation in Genesis. That, I would argue, is the same temptation that's happening in the wilderness. You don't have to settle for Messiah. You can be God the Father himself. Why settle for the one who's going to be sent by God when you can just be God? Call, just throw yourself off. They'll listen to you, those angels. That's also the same playbook that you find in the book of Exodus. Now, here's where I'm going to get really complicated on you, so follow along. Uh, Psalm 91 um, is what Jesus quotes. Uh, I'm sorry, what Satan quotes. Jesus will respond with Deuteronomy 6. We don't have time for the whole passage of Deuteronomy 6, but it is known as the Shema. It's the central prayer. It's all about trusting God. And it's uh, in response, uh, kind of the specific spot he'll play, he'll quote, is this moment in which the Israelites are grumbling because they don't have any water. And uh, because they don't have any water, Moses gets fed up and he hits a rock. We'll study that story in the fall, but he hits a rock and he takes on the role of God. God says, vengeance is mine. You don't get to get angry in this way. You don't get to abuse your power. So Jesus will quote that, and what God says, don't put God to the test. You don't get to play the role of God. You are trying to step into the wrong role. I find Jesus quite brilliant. See what he does? Oh, you think you're trying to tempt me by saying you don't have to follow the plan. Just ignore your father. You have got, you're God's son, you're the Messiah, and Jesus sees what's coming. Um, and Jesus uh, gives us a litmus test for how do we read this book. Uh, he's actually, it's actually a very clear litmus test. Um, it's a very simple litmus test for how do you know if you're reading the Bible correctly. Here it is. It's two parts. Love God and love others. Does your reading of the Bible cause you to love God more sincerely? Or is it just selfish? Are you trying to gain power? Does your reading of the scriptures cause you to love others uh, more personally, more intentionally? Or is it to use your power to gain something from them? That's the litmus test. Uh, Jesus quotes that exact litmus test in Matthew 22. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, I looked that word up all, it directly translates all. 
All the Bible, all the Old Testament hangs on these two commandments. All 613 laws, they all hang on whether we do those two things. Love God, love others. You can think of them like glasses when you read your text. You put on the glasses. Am I reading it right? If it's causing me to love others more and if it's causing me to love God more, I'm probably reading it correctly. If it's causing me to justify something, causing me to hold unforgiveness, causing me to be greedier, I'm probably reading this passage incorrectly. Love God, love others. Okay, two quick things. Um, The early Christian said, but not only do we have that, the lens, Jesus himself was the word made flesh. We have his life to look at. We can look at his life um, to figure out, are we doing it right? Many of us claim Jesus as our Lord. We sing songs about Jesus as our Savior. We will raise our hands. And yet, for many of us, we have four authoritative accounts of the life of Jesus. And very few of us probably have read them. Very often, at least. Takes you... uh, Someone counted two and a half hours to read the average reading speed, two and a half hours to read Matthew, an hour and a half to read Mark, two and a half hours to read Luke, two hours to read John, eight and a half hours. Put that in perspective, that's like two episodes of Joe Rogan or uh, half of a season of whatever show we binge on Netflix. Not that much time, and it's all we have. For those of us who have the vision of wanting to be like Jesus, that's the plan. Um, Quick, second quick observation, this ties to the rule of life. Uh, I said last week that it's not about adding more things to an already busy schedule. And now it sounds like I'm saying, but add eight hours of reading about Jesus to an already busy schedule. Simple observation is we all follow someone. This idea that there are followers and there are unfollowers or non-followers, we all follow someone. We're being formed by someone's or someone's. We are to be the ones who are really intentional about who's forming us. If you spend 10 minutes a day with Jesus and three hours with Tucker or three hours with Anderson or three hours with Rogan, not a judgment on them, but you most likely will look more like Tucker, Rogan, or Anderson than you will like Jesus. They're just in your ear longer. Central to, I think, a healthy spiritual rule of life is being really intentional, not just with who's the voice we're listening to, but which other voices are getting a dominant role in their life and how are they forming us? So if our vision is to look like Jesus, we need a plan. Uh, I said a lot of words. Let me wrap up with these from Paul. This is worth the price of admission, which is free and uh, Hungarian chocolate. Um, (laughs) This is out of Ephesians. Paul, again, writes... Watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Isn't that beautiful? We'll end there. Let's, let's pray. Lord. Uh, We want to be people that um, are shaped by the scriptures. We want to be people who, when we do quote the Bible, Lord, it's it's in an effort to love like you loved, to uh, love you with everything we have, our heart, soul, mind, strength, and, Lord, to love our neighbor as ourself. 
Would we um, be people who, uh, Lord, give us the ability, the tools, the resources, the, the courage, the stamina to um, allow your voice to have more influence and dominance in our life. Uh, Lord, help us to discern what other voices may be trying to take the throne of our heart. Uh, Jesus, we love you, we trust you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.